Hello, and welcome to The Faculty Chronicles, TFC, a podcast sponsored by the Turo Center on Excellence in Teaching and Learning and the Office of the Provost. Your TFC podcast hosts are me, Professor Gina Bardwell, and Dr. Elizabeth Uni. Across academic disciplines, Turo faculty are producing great work, and the Faculty Chronicles wants you to hear all about it. TFC podcasts will highlight faculty chatting about their favorite project in research, teaching, learning, science, medicine, technology, and so much more. So let's get busy building community, connection, and continuous conversation Turo-wide. Our next Faculty Chronicle guest is on deck waiting to chat. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Faculty Chronicles. I am Elizabeth Uni, Chair and Associate Professor with the Department of Social, Behavioral and Administrative Sciences with the Toro College of Pharmacy in New York. Our guest for the day is Dr. Aurelio Lorico, Professor of Basic Sciences from Toro, Nevada. Dr. Lorico obtained his MD and PhD degrees in Italy and moved soon after to Yale University, where he was trained as a cancer pharmacologist for seven years. He then worked at the Norwegian Cancer Center and at the Mitchell Cancer Institute on cancer pharmacology and gene therapy projects. He joined the Nevada Cancer Institute 13 years ago, and he came to Toro, Nevada four years ago. During his time in Nevada, he had assembled an international group of collaborators working on mechanisms of intercellular communication mediated by extracellular vesicles. Aurelio and his collaborators are currently pursuing new therapies that address metastatic cancer and possibly viral diseases. The work is based on a novel mechanism of cellular transport discovered in his laboratory that brings the content of extracellular vesicles and viruses like HIV, the agent of AIDS, into the nucleus. Some of the new compounds have demonstrated therapeutic activity against cancer metastasis and against HIV infection and currently being developed as anti-cancer and antiviral pharmaceuticals. Aurelio, welcome to the podcast. We are so happy to have you here. Thank you, Elizabeth. Same for me. Aurelio, we know that you recently won the Presidential Research Grant Award. Though I gave an introduction about your research, please tell the audience about your research. I am essentially a cancer scientist, and I have realized many years ago that the problem in healthcare is not cancer, but it's the development of distant metastasis. It's about 90% attributable to metastasis, the uh, bad outcome of cancer. So unfortunately, uh, most therapies are directed toward uh, the primary cancer, whether it's by chemotherapy, surgery, radiotherapy, and there are not many therapies for cancer metastasis. Many years ago, I thought that the most important thing was to understand how the metastases are formed and especially how normal cells in the body can help cancer cells form metastasis in distant organs. And I came on the knowledge, the, the concept of cell communication mediated by 
small vesicles called extracellular vesicles or exosomes have been neglected for many years because they are too small. They're too small for regular microscopy. They are too small for the technology that we have had until a few years ago. They could be seen by electron microscopy, but the idea was that it was dust or debris. They were uh, started, they were called originally platelet dust. About 10 or 20 years ago, people started to suggest that maybe these were messenger. They were messengers that were protecting messages between cells and were delivering messages from one cell to the other. And then the idea came that if this is true, cancer cells can communicate with normal cells in the body and kind of recruit them so that cancer can thrive through these messages containing extracellular vesicles. Now, this is not trivial because if we take a drop of our blood, we find billions, literally billions of these small vesicles in one drop of blood. This is not something incidental. This is a main participant in our health. While studying extracellular vesicles, I thought that there was something missing because these extracellular vesicles enter a cell and then are secluded by the cell through a series of membranes. They're like a car entering into a city and until the passengers get off the car, they cannot do anything. And that was happening with the vesicles. The vesicles were going into the cell and they had a lot of very important molecules, but these molecules were trapped in this vesicle. And at the end, the vesicle would even be either be destroyed or go out of, of the cell. So I thought the only way for this content of the vesicles to have a, a meaning is that they need to go into the nucleus. Now the nucleus of a cell is like the central command. It's where all the operation uh, takes place. And that's where we have a regulation of the behavior of the cell. So I thought these messages have to go into the nucleus, but how? And I found out there are roads inside the nucleus that not many people know, and they're called invaginations of the nuclear envelope. So the nucleus is surrounded by an envelope and there are roads that go into the nucleus. These vesicles take these roads. What we found actually, this is not temporally sequential. This discovery came a couple of months ago. We discovered that actually the vesicles produce the formation of these roads or these invaginations. So when vesicles reach a cell, the vesicles induce the formation of these roads into the nucleus that allow their content to access important places inside the nucleus. This is even more complicated now because we've also realized that these vesicles are very similar to viruses. So we don't know what came first, if uh, the vesicles imitated viruses or if viruses imitated vesicles, it's like the chicken or, or the egg who, who comes first. But what we have discovered for the first time is that viruses like the virus HIV that determines AIDS is also following this path into the nucleus. So induces the formation of these roads inside the nucleus so that the virus itself or the vesicles can go in. So you're saying, what does the virus has to do with cancer? I hope we will get there at the end of my description of this research. We went ahead in our research and we found the molecules that allow this to happen, allow the formation of these roads, these invaginations, and allows the vesicles of the virus to go into the nucleus. And then we said, 
now if we know this new pathway, this new road, and we can block, so we can put a roadblock, what's gonna happen? There's gonna happen two things. For cancer, the vesicles are no longer allowing the cancer cells to communicate with the normal cells. So we're gonna have a block and cancer cannot form metastasis because like, let's say that cancer cells go to the lung where a lot of metastasis unfortunately are formed. Well, when the cancer cells arrive in the lung, they need to interact with lymphocytes, with fibroblasts, with cells of the patient uh, in order to, to thrive and grow. This is mediated by the cellular vesicles. If we block this road to the nucleus, this is not going to happen. And so what happens in the case of viruses? Well, that's also very good because if the HIV virus or maybe other viruses need this road to go into the nucleus and replicate and give the what we call a productive infection, so a real infection that determines AIDS, if we put a roadblock and we don't allow the virus to go into the nucleus, then we have a therapy for AIDS. We designed a 3D model where knowing these molecules that determine the entry into the nucleus, we could produce drugs that block this. So for cancer, we, in experimental system, we are able to block metastasis. And for uh, viruses, we actually block the infection by HIV in uh, experimental system. It's like if we block AIDS. That's... Uh, that's uh, the type of research that we have been doing, me with my team, Turo, Nevada, in the last four years. That's very interesting. Now, this research is a heavy research. You know, it's not something that is easy. You know, like uh, years of your life have gone into this research of discovering this pathway and discovering this block, uh, all these kind of things. So tell us a little bit about how did you get into the cancer research and what keeps you going? I'm sure that you might have had your moments of failure during research like any other scientist, right? So you got, how did you get into this research and in spite of everything, in spite of the heaviness of this research, in spite of the time it is taking, what keeps you going? So yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I would summarize 90% sense of failure and 10% sense that we are getting somewhere. I have come to realize that sometimes God allows us to open a small window if we are enough humble to understand that we are uh, really minuscule compared to the knowledge and the creation in nature, then maybe we are allowed to have a glimpse to a little bit of uh, this mystery of life, right? I had this idea when I was in high school that I had a, a class of biology or actually it was anatomy and I didn't know anything about biology or anatomy and uh, I was very intrigued and somehow I decided at that moment, the same day, that I wanted to do this and I wanted to understand how cancer was formed and how to cure cancer. So back then I was in Palermo, Sicily, a wonderful place that now has become a very great hub for cancer research. Back then there was some research, but there wasn't any cancer research there. So I had to leave. I got a position, actually it was a tenure position in my 20s in a cancer center in Italy. In my 20s, I had a kind of tenure position in research and I had a lab with uh, three, four people. And I realized that I could make a career, but I could not solve the problem of cancer. So I left and I had a, 
a postdoc. Actually, at the beginning, I wasn't even paid uh, at Yale University. There I spent seven years. It was very useful. At a certain point, I was asked, do you want to come back or you lose your tenure and everything? I said, well, okay, I'll lose tenure. And I remain at Yale with a kind of postdoc or um, senior junior faculty position. I learned a lot there. I was in a lab. Chemotherapy was invented at Yale. So I was working on chemotherapy and especially was working to the problem of resistance to chemotherapeutic drugs. And I did some good discoveries. I was in a place that, of course, makes it easy to make a career. And so I started being known in the field of drug resistance. So knowing everybody, talking to conferences and so on. At a certain point, I had another illumination, which was I was working on resistance to chemotherapy, but chemotherapy is still very appreciated and used, but chemotherapy will never cure cancer because it's non-specific and it's very toxic. So working on the problem of drug resistance to chemotherapy wasn't what I wanted to do. So I left the field and that was very painful because leaving a field means starting from scratch, like if you've never done anything before. And at that point, I thought if I learned about gene therapy, maybe that could have a real meaning in cancer. And gene therapy is a very important branch of medicine where you take a gene, you insert it into cells and cure diseases. I spent a few years doing that until I got another realization that gene therapy is great for uh, genetic diseases. So if you miss an enzyme, and you can introduce a gene that produces that enzyme. That's great. But cancer is not that. Cancer is very complicated. It's not a single gene. So gene therapy approaches to cancer, for me, were destined to failure. And so again, at that time, I was in Norway. Again, I left the field looking for a field that could bring to some breakthroughs in cancer. And you may say, well, this is arrogance. This is pride. Why you... I, I don't know. It, it, maybe it was arrogance back then. It's certainly not arrogance now. Again, it's just a, a resilience and trying to find an area where you can contribute to general knowledge. So it's more persistent of resilience than anything else. Until I got into this, to this encounter with this area of extracellular vesicles and communication between cells, that as you see, it puts together virology and cancer because at the end, extracellular vesicles are almost identical to viruses. So when you study their mechanism, you study cancer, but you also study virology and viral diseases. Innovation doesn't come from deep knowledge of a topic. Innovation comes from broad knowledge of whatever is available in the hope that you get a glimpse to that window of science that you are allowed to access. Beautiful. So when you're talking about this, when you say that what we need is a broad knowledge of whatever is available, what we know about a certain topic. Introduction, I know that you have been doing a lot of collaborations across the various places. So can you tell us a little bit about these amazing collaborations that you have created in your, you know, in the past few years with Toro and how that has helped you in this innovation that you're trying to pursue. Even if you are allowed to explore different areas and understand medicine and understand biology, understand pharmacology and understand a little bit of different fields, 
your knowledge is so minuscule that you cannot achieve anything unless you set up collaborations. So you still need to have your strength in a certain area, know most areas very superficially, and then find collaborators. And throughout my life, I have not had this framework, this mental framework of looking for real collaborators. This all started a little more than 10 years ago that uh, I, I was working on stem cells back then, another thing that I've done. And I was collaborating with a, a French Canadian working in Germany. And he was the, the guy that actually invented this, the most important stem cell marker. So we started collaborating and then we both moved into the extracellular vesicle field. At that point, we started collaborating in a way that we wouldn't keep anything secret. We would really work together in two different labs across the ocean. We managed to publish four or five papers, apply for grants and prepare talks for meetings and so on without ever meeting each other. We met four or five years after our first collaboration. Everything was virtual. And then of course, it was very nice to, to get uh, to meet each other. So this was my real first very strong collaboration that continues until today. I mean, we, we either Skype or Zoom or email every day for now almost 10 years. And he is an adjunct at Turo Nevada. Apart from collaborators at Turo Nevada, which is essentially the team I'm part of that are absolutely amazing, I've done all the work because uh, now I'm not even in the lab myself. I had to find uh, collaborators that had expertise that I didn't know. I mean, the first thing you have to understand your ignorance. And so I've been looking for collaborators. And what is required by collaborators is that they are serious, that they're committed, they love science and do not have a big ego. So I've been able to recognize this type of collaborators. And I'm telling you, there is, there is a lot of them. So I, I started um, collaborations with uh, uh, Turo New York, um, Middletown. I needed to do drugs. Uh, Turo does not have a chemistry lab. So I went back to Italy and there are amazing organic chemists there that do not have a lot of means. We talked together and uh, we had this agreement. And I have to say, by collaborating with uh, 3D modelers in Milan and synthetic organic chemists in Italy, and having reagents shipped to them, the drugs shipped to us that we could test them. That uh, brought us to have actual drugs for, for cancer and viral diseases. And then we start a collaboration with a cancer center in, in Sicily, it's called Mediterranean Institute of Oncology, that now is a partner of TUN. We have a memorandum of understanding. And then I started having collaboration with Lovelace, which is another institution that joined the, the, the Turo family. And then I met somebody at George Mason University that was uh, an expert in HIV. And I entered into his network and we are writing a grant together. And uh, I start collaboration with Jefferson University on integrins, on other topics. What we have in common is that we set our egos aside and we work together. We try to have improvements looking not at our career, which actually at my age, I'm not too interested in, but more at progress and at the end, at the welfare of patients. Awesome. That's so beautiful. On that note, I want to ask you, if you have a word of advice 
to the new and young Torah faculty who is starting the research? What would that be? Well, I think this is uh, consequential from all that I've been saying, and this is a little recurrent. So what I would suggest for young faculty is that they look around, they found mentors, they start finding collaborations, very humble, try to have an expertise in an area, and from there to expand their horizons. Try to have an open mind about things, maybe risky projects. So I would say leaps of knowledge rather than continuous work for 40 years on a specific enzyme or protein or microRNA or, or molecule. Beautiful. So what I'm hearing from you is two words, basically. The first one I'm hearing is that to be humble enough because the nature is so big, we don't know a lot of it. So be humble enough so that we can at least see a little bit of that nature and understand it. The second thing I'm hearing is that be innovative. Don't be stuck in one place. Come out of it and be innovative. If you think you need to find something else, move to that system and try to figure it out. Those are the two things I'm hearing from you. Or your research journey, which has, which I think has been a wonderful journey, going from places from Italy to Nevada, and now collaborating back with Italy again. It's almost like a circle. I something. I'm quoting this because I'm not an expert, but I seem to understand that the reason why we got these RNA vaccines that have helped us all in COVID is because a scientist was working on this mRNA technology, right? And from what I heard, this scientist was essentially fired from her workplace because she was not getting grants and nobody believed in this technology. Well, this technology and what she found has allowed humanity to get out of COVID with the RNA vaccines, right? So. I think this should be celebrated as an example that persistence and resilience is important, but also as a call for change of how research is made, allowing possibility of exploration of fields because of their nature may lead to a non-productive career for many years. But if we shut the door to this innovative research, we're not going to go anywhere. We will be stuck in our current knowledge. So true, so true. Completely agree with that. Aurelia, thank you so much for being a guest today. We enjoyed listening to the research that you're doing and good luck. And we hope that you'll be able to find what you're searching for. Thank you to our listeners for tuning into the Faculty Chronicles. Until next time, signing off is Elizabeth Uni. Thank you for inviting me, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Faculty Chronicles, TFC, Turo's podcast featuring the projects and work of faculty throughout the Turo College and University System. TFC is sponsored by the Office of the Provost and Kettle, the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning. We hope you like what you heard and will keep listening. So join us next time on the Faculty Chronicles as we highlight and share faculty achievements that build community, connection, and continuous conversation.